Hello and welcome. Welcome to another edition of Atlas Live. We are glad that you could join us tonight. And tonight, we hope that you will enjoy the topic because it is one which we often mention in various different ways. We cover some of the so-called spiritual paradoxes in many of our live streams or discussions or perhaps on Facebook and some of our memes that we've created, we attempt to address some of the more pressing spiritual paradoxes which can cause a fair amount of discomfort for the mind, confusion, but more importantly, some of these apparent paradoxes offer an opportunity for the ego mind to arrive at its own erroneous conclusions as what these apparent paradoxes or apparent contradictions of spirituality, what they mean, what is the, in the final analysis, what is the conclusion that we draw in terms of how do we live our lives practically with this contradiction? How do we deal with this contradiction? Because the mind wants a definitive answer. The mind wants to know, is it A or B, this or that, black or white? That's the way the mind works. The mind wants a definitive answer. And in absence of a definitive answer that the mind can understand, the ego mind will invent its own answer. The ego mind will arrive at some conclusion that satisfies itself and removes the discomfort of the mystery. It alleviates that discomfort because the mind doesn't like to be uncomfortable. We all know that about ourselves. Our ego prefers comfort and security. And the comfort and security, which is afforded by beliefs, are one of the primary modalities of comfort and security that the human machine seeks, meaning the intellectual animal believing itself to be a human being seeks. So in the presence of spiritual paradoxes, the star seed, the light seeker, the light healer, the new ager, the aspirant, the initiate, whatever you want to call someone on the path or someone who's drawn to spirituality, when they face these paradoxes and they feel this mental discomfort, this intellectual discomfort with these apparent paradoxes and the emotional discomfort which comes with that, and that emotional discomfort is actually an ego reaction to the mystery, to the not knowing, 
and to the not having a definitive answer, a binary dichotomy to deal with. Yes or no, this or that, good or evil, for example. And we will address that one in a, in a little while. So the issue around spiritual paradoxes is not that they exist. And it's not that the mind is not supposed to grasp. It's that the mind cannot grasp fully and comprehend fully, holistically, multidimensionally, the truth when it comes to such paradoxes in their pure form, in their pure state. However, as you know, we always seek very down-to-earth, very practical ways of discussing most of the topics that we share with you. Scriptures aside, ancient texts aside, the teachings of countless masters aside, there is always the imperative to be infinitely practical. And in this day and age, that means bringing the essence of the teachings in as down-to-earth a way as possible. So that indeed we can grasp the essence without knowing fully and completely, which we will not know until we are awakened and become one with the phenomenon of these paradoxes themselves, which are only apparent paradoxes. But if we can find the analogous phenomena here and now, because remember, as above, so below. As within, so without. So that which appears paradoxical to the mind, really, there are practical examples, analogous phenomena, which the mind has no problems with. Could, could perfectly understand. So by making those connections we can resolve these paradoxes without the mind resorting to its tricks, to its fallacies, to its erroneous conclusions in an effort to create comfort and security. Because at the end of the day, understanding these paradoxes may not deliver the comfort and security in the purest sense but it will satisfy the ego mind, or at least will shut it up when it comes to this particular paradox. Or at least that's the goal, is that to take the power away from the ego mind, the adversary, and give it back to the consciousness. So the analogous phenomenon that we will be using tonight to peel back the layers of these spiritual paradoxes are 
self-evident experiential knowledge, what we seek. And very much, again, we are doing this because we encounter time and time and time again, especially on Facebook, especially in spiritual groups, esoteric groups, self-styled light workers and indigo children and star seeds and they they have all of these different names and expressions for themselves reiki masters and spiritual this and spiritual that and yet they have not comprehended any of these most fundamental and to the ego mind troubling contradictions and so they've not comprehended them what they've done is they've allowed their ego mind to hypnotize them with clever tricks, clever answers, or nihilistic answers, or mystic pride has given them the answer. And we will, we will go over some of these. And it's important for all of us to know what these are so that when we encounter individuals who are falling victim to their own ego mind's way of dealing with these paradoxes, we can offer them a different perspective, a superior perspective, a perspective of consciousness, not of belief, not of theory, not of conjecture, not of something that somebody wrote in a book somewhere, but here, now, together, we will explore and we will together comprehend these analogous phenomenon and so unravel the essence the s the essential truths behind these paradoxes so let's uh begin by arranging our desktop here so that we can now strangely enough what we don't have is okay we're going to have to uh, do something just momentarily bear with us please because something did not work with our Something, of course, use presenter view. Yeah, we click that from beginning. Where's our presenter view? Okay, there's our presenter view. All right. And we're back. Oh, technical difficulties, yeah? They are a wonderful thing. There. Now we're back, or at least we should be. All right. Okay. So... 
Let's try this. Okay. The first paradox that we're going to explore this evening is the paradox of divine and mechanical nature. And the contradiction that we are going to the contradiction that we are going to address is this question isn't all nature divine and for many they find this a difficult contradiction to to deal with because as beautiful as nature can be and as divine as nature is we all know that nature can be cruel nature can be violent and chaotic destructive and harmful in many many ways So, when we think about nature, often we envision some beautiful, idyllic scene. That some sort of Garden of Eden. And indeed, for this reason, it is important for us to go out and spend time in nature. Nature is in many ways a perfect expression of the creative force of the universe in nature we experience beauty and truth in a myriad infinite expressions one can spend a lifetime searching for the perfect sakura blossom or cherry blossom and this is that's a line that comes from the film the last samurai with tom cruise and of course at the moment of this particular character's enlightenment he looks up at the cherry blossoms and he realizes the truth they're all perfect in all of its myriad diversity all of the flowers all of the birds all of the mountains all of the trees are individuated expressions of the perfection that we seek on the spiritual path and we seek that the source of that perfection within ourselves because we too are an expression of that perfection but there are many many cases when we encounter elements in nature which are not so pleasant are not so beautiful and sometimes 
this is this is image is not necessarily one of those. But we seek to cross the dark wood into the light. We seek to, we it's sometimes nature is a dark foreboding cave or it's a it's a dangerous jungle because if you've ever been to the jungle they euphemistically renamed it rainforest but what it is is a jungle and if you've ever been in a jungle you know that the jungle is basically looking to eat you alive at every opportunity and without a guide an experienced guide or without some sort of path through that more brutal savage expression of nature nature can be very destructive and seemingly antithetical to the beauty and the perfection that we seek within ourselves because certainly it is safe to say that most people on the spiritual path do not seek to express their inner savagery, their inner animal brutality, those primal instincts, which we all possess as intellectual animals. Most people on the spiritual path seek to express compassion and love and kindness and so when they experience that primal savagery that brutality when that gets triggered in them they either want to avoid it entirely or it causes them a great deal of distress discomfort insecurity I'm a star seed. I'm a light worker. Where did that, where did this savagery come from? Or they justify it and they rationalize it and they say, well, it's all nature. It's all beautiful. It's all good. So my brutality, my savagery, or the most predominant way in which that rationalization expresses itself is individuals justifying and rationalizing lust that procreation is perfectly natural and animals have sex and everything has sex and sex is the power of creation and sex is the power of the universe and it's perfectly perfectly normal and natural to orgasm to ejaculate to orgasm as much and as often as possible that's what the doctors say too that's what they say that that's they actually say that's healthy So this is a real contradiction. This is a real paradox that people face. And we're going to take Eleftheria's question here. She asks, 
yogis or gurus seem content to disengage from the world and its problems. Yet they know reincarnation is real and will likely come back to the ever-increasing dystopian world they chose to ignore. Why? Are you asking why they returned to the dystopian world or why did they choose to, in, to disengage from it? Uh, yogis and gurus who disengage from the world are not on a genuine spiritual path, for starters. They might believe that they are. They might be convinced that they are. They might, be, they might belong to a order or religion or cult or sect which teaches that. Or they might be ascetic yogis which go up to the top of the mountain or go into a cave for decades and they achieve what they believe to be enlightenment. Yeah, that's what we thought you meant. So, but what they are doing is locking themselves in a vacuum chamber, hermetically sealed, isolated from the world. And they are, they are working on themselves in a vacuum. But as all of us know, our defects and vices come to the surface when they are triggered, when they are reacting to something or to someone very often we're reacting to others others that we have attracted into our life others who share similar vibrations similar egos and they come at us with a certain vibration and then our egos react automatically mechanically to those vibrations So individuals who go up to the top of the mountain and believe themselves to be enlightened, very often those gurus, those masters, if they come back down the first day, they realize how little progress they've made. Because invariably, they come back into the world and the world is, if anything, as Eleftheria points out, it's even worse than it was when they, they abandoned it, when they fled from it. The desire to become an aesthetic is a desire. It's mystic pride, and it's fed by, obviously, pride, mystic pride, but also by fear, because the desire for comfort and security. What Master Samael said was it's important for all aspirants to go out and engage in the world and it's how important the what he called the psychological gymnasium of the world and as we've often mentioned and we will mention it later in this uh, presentation how it's only through working out that we become stronger 
And we'll get into this more. But why? So this is why yogis do it. Right? They do it because they believe that by isolating themselves from the world, they can focus on themselves and focus on God and focus on their enlightenment, focus on their meditation, on their yoga, etc., etc., etc. They can focus, they can concentrate, everything else. Well, but it's easy to focus and concentrate when you have nothing distracting you. It's easy to concentrate when you have no distractions. But that's not mastery. Mastery is the ability to focus and concentrate when you are surrounded by distractions. Mastery is having control over your mind and your emotions and your physical body even as you are being attacked, even as you are being assaulted. So without those attacks, without those adversarial conflicts, we don't know what we're capable of. And we don't know what all egos are still left for us to work on. Because with the comfort and security of an ascetic lifestyle, sitting atop a mountain or in the cave, without a care in the world, just focusing on self, focusing on self and having shamadis and, you know, and, and being able to go 30 days, 90 days, 180 days without food or water. This is what ascetic yogis do. Extreme, getting extreme control over their physical and mental and emotional state. Extreme. But one person climbs that mountain and disturbs their, their peace, disturbs their recluse. One nosy, obnoxious, uh, gregarious <laughs> individual and poof, all of that yogi's hard work just vanishes as they feel their frustration and their anger and their coming back, coming to the surface because their sacred space has been violated, has been contaminated, has been infiltrated by this strange person or worse. They come back down from the mountain and realize that they've made very little progress. Sure. They have phenomenal control over their physical body, but big deal. Not truly, honestly, and truly big deal. In the supernal worlds, we have no physical body. Spending a lifetime developing the capacity to have this incredible control over the physical body. I mean, it's, it's fine. It's good. But it doesn't, doesn't say anything about your level of being. It doesn't say anything about your, your egos and how, how you conquered your egos. No, it just means that you've become very focused and concentrated in being able to control your physical nature, your nature, your mechanical nature. You can be completely mechanical 
and have fantastic control over your mechanical body. Absolutely. The seeker has to go to the city and has to deal with, with other people and with the, uh, the problems facing the world and must learn how to develop equanimity under those circumstances. So let's continue. Here we have an image showing two individuals. The individual on the left is Joan of Arc. And the individual on the right is a male model on a runway show. And we chose this image, these images, we chose to juxtapose them against one another because these are two individuals who are both clad in iron. And we are living in the Iron Age and they're both wearing a kind of armor, mechanical armor. Joan of Arc, who is a Christified master, and this fellow on the right, who's a male model and showing some sort of latest avant-garde fashion. Mechanical nature itself does not determine the level of our being. Joan of Arc, who was, a, who, who was sainted by the Catholic Church as well, but she's a Christified master. She wore armor. She carried a sword. She, she went into battle. She used all the tools of her mechanical nature in the service of her innermost being and in, in the service of the Logos. There is no contradiction in the life of Joan of Arc. She did what she came here to do. But at the same time, on the right, we see there's no guarantee that mechanical nature is going to make of all of us a Joan of Arc, a Bodhisattva a resurrected master. Because the fellow on the right, that image shows how most of humanity functions as mechanical nature. With all of these mechanical pieces in a kind of chaos inside of them. Mechanical nature itself can serve divine nature and does serve divine nature but in itself mechanical nature is not divine in and of itself it is but it isn't because it will not make of this fellow on the right a bodhisattva mechanical nature will not do that you mechanical nature does not produce an awakened or self-realized soul 
on the left, Joan of Arc is not a bodhisattva, is not a Christified master because of the armor she wears, because of her mechanical nature. We're going to pause and take some questions here. So why is it that a majority human nature is so confrontational, brutal, self-centered, if we are all made in God's perfect image? DNA that is not awakened or a poison that has uprooted societies, both past and present. It is precisely because of mechanical nature. Because egos work for mechanical nature. It is because of lust, greed, anger, fear, envy, pride. These are our egos. And the majority is upwards of 97 to 99% ego. The majority of human beings on this planet are not human beings. They're intellectual animals. They're mechanical beings, and they're entirely infested and infected by egos. They're controlled and manipulated by those egos. They call themselves I. They create the illusion of that I, that self, that false self, and they put the consciousness to sleep. And egos work for mechanical nature, because if you look at nature... And you look at the lower levels of nature, so animals, for example, and insects and predators and so on and so forth. You look at their brutality and everything else, you realize that fear on the level of animals is an absolute requirement. Because predators and prey, prey need to know when they're in danger. So fear provides them that. Animals need to know when it's time to procreate. So lust provides them that. Pack animals, lions, for example, or wolves, well, lions, we even call lions a lion pack. We even call them, we could even call it a pride. So whether it's a wolf pack or a pride of lions, they need to be able to organize themselves in some sort of social structure with the alpha, with some sort of social structure of leadership. There needs to be an alpha male and an alpha female. And what provides that? The ego of pride. And so those egos are also within us. But this, huma you, this humanity has fallen, and we've fallen so deeply, so far into those egos. And that, is, that is the answer to your question. We are all made in God's perfect image as a monad, as a divine soul, as a spark as an essence, as a seed, our innermost being. 
we'll we'll cover this in a little bit. Roy asks, the warrior of inner spirit and warrior of the materialistic world, the monad and the robot. You may be making reference here to the analogy that we often use between Iron Man and Ultron. How the Iron Man suit is just a mechanical suit that has this AI in it called Jarvis. And they serve Tony Stark. That's mechanical nature. That is our mechanical nature, Dylan. Right? We have a personality and we have this physical body. That is what mechanical nature gave to our innermost being, our innermost Tony Stark, the hero of our story. Now, can Tony Stark be a superhero? without the Iron Man suit? Frankly, no, not really. It's the Iron Man suit and that, that gives him the vehicle for, through which he can perform all of his heroic deeds, all of his heroism. And the, the artificial intelligence of Jay, of Jarvis in that suit is indispensable to him as an ally, as a servant. But how many people on this planet are aware of their innermost Tony Stark? How many people on this planet live their life day to day, moment to moment in the service of their innermost hero? How many use the mechanical armor and the AI, the, their intelligence, to serve what they perceive as their own desires? This is the archetype and the allegory of Ultron. Ultron, who is an abomination and a creation of Tony Stark when the, the influences of the Tesseract, we're going to call the Tesseract here, is analogous to the ego, creates a self-aware AI in Ultron that seeks its own desires. It has its own ends, its own goals. And one of those goals is to destroy Tony Stark, his creator. Ultron and Iron Man are the perfect modern-day mythological allegory for this humanity, what it means to be awake and in service of our innermost being, and what it means to be asleep and in the service of the ego, whose goal is to destroy the being. 
and it also explains this whole issue around you know being made in the perfect image and likeness of god etc etc let's continue shall we here we have a seed an acorn well a nut right the seed is inside the nut and that's important and we see the forest from the point of view of this acorn which has fallen which has fallen from those trees and the acorn says well look i fell from those trees i'm made of the same stuff of trees i even have tree dna inside i must be a tree Is an acorn a tree? <clears throat> Does any reasonable application of objective reality tell you that an acorn is a tree? An acorn is a tree in potentiality only. And how does an acorn become a tree? Well, it has to fall to the ground and it's, it must be buried. Its shell must crack open and its seed must germinate, must sprout. In other words, the seed must die. The acorn must die. It must cease to become an acorn. Unless it becomes an acorn, unless it unbecomes its current state of being an acorn, it cannot and will never be a tree. It will never be, even though it's part of the forest, the acorn is part of the forest, but the acorn does not yet belong to the great brotherhood of trees, to the great family of trees, because it's not yet a tree. So when we look up to the heavens, and when we look up to divinity, we must remember our perspective, our point of view. We are seeing the great firmament, the heavens, from the point of view of a seed. That seed is inside of us, our monad, our essence. And this body, this vehicle, this vessel, is just a nut, it's just an acorn. This is what the star seeds, self-styled, self-called star seeds, 
you know, fail to recognize. And refuse to accept. They want to believe that they're all one with the universe already. They're all God already. Because it's all God. It's all nature. God created everything. And everything is God. So therefore, we're all one with the universe and we're all one already. They forget what Michelangelo said. I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. David is 18 feet tall. 18 feet tall. A tall person is six foot. David is three times the height of a tall person. And he started out as a presumably 20 foot tall block of marble. Now, had Michelangelo not carved until he set the angel free, would Michelangelo be a master? Or would he be a self-deluded wannabe? It's not enough for us to say, oh, we have a David inside of us. We are all, we are all God. We are all gods already. Why? Because God's inside of us. We all have God inside of us. So we're all gods already. No, that's not how this works. And anyone who believes that is just using, falling into the trap of the intellect, nihilistically avoiding and spiritual bypassing and avoiding all the work that goes into becoming a master artist, for example, of carving David or a master anything, or just a plain-up master, awake, self-realized. One who carved that mastery out of this crude form, this crude block, this unrefined, unpolished, unchiseled, block of potentiality, this seed. Ramon says, the armor can also be seen as the protective mechanism of the human soul, the superior manas man that we must incarcerate, that we must incarcerate? No, incarnate through sexual magic. The armor is not a protective mechanism of the human soul. The human soul requires no protective mechanism. The armor is a vehicle. It's a vessel for the humans, for the, the divine soul to be here now in 3D space. Experiencing this 3D reality. You need a vessel. You need a 3D vessel to be in 3D space and experience as a character in that 
virtual reality MMORPG. That's what the body is. The divine soul requires no, no protection because the divine soul really has no fear. We have fear because, and as so long as we possess that fear, our divine soul, our innermost, is going to be trapped on this plane of existence, trying to work out and liberate itself from that fear. That's the only reason why we need a protect, protective mechanism. Um, and you're referring to the human soul. The human soul has to be created. That's what we create through sexual magic. And once we've created the human soul, we awaken and then we can bring forth into the world with greater clarity that uh, the, the work and effort of the divine soul, the innermost. It's just frustrating to see anyone throw a gift away. It is, and so many do, and so many have. It's called selling out. It's called selling your soul to the devil. All you have to do is read Faust or Tolstoy or, I mean, countless other, countless other works of, of great literature or opera or Shakespeare or it's just that that is a tragedy. It is, it's a tragedy. But everyone has the free will to do so. Yeah, so we talk about the blacksmith, we talk about alchemy, the forge of Vulcan, transmutation of the ego, the lead of the ego into the gold of the human soul, um, transmuting the ego mind into consciousness. That's all part of this process of carving David out of the marble or cracking the seed, germinating the seed. So when we talk about mechanical nature, what you have here on the screen is a pair of training wheels. Now, training wheels are what help a child begin riding a bicycle. And perhaps you, you experience this or you've had children that have had training wheels. Now, the question that we ask is, Are there any training wheels in the Tour de France? This is a photo of the Tour de France. It's the most difficult bicycle race, the most prestigious and the most challenging in the world. And they go all through the Alps and the Pyrenees, climbing mountains every day, every stage, another, I don't know how many kilometers up and down mountains. Do you see any training wheels there? Now, in recent years, there have been tremendous blood doping scandals or doping scandals around the Tour de France. So, you know, cheating in sport has been uh, a major issue with this, with this particular sport, cycling. It's a different kind of training wheel, isn't it? But here we see a reflection of what happens to spiritual aspirants 
on the path who become attached to their mechanical selves, their mechanical nature. Because in their immaturity or in their younger years or in whatever, in their at the beginning, those that mechanical nature served a purpose in helping them get onto that bicycle. And they got used to that, the comfort and security that mechanical nature provides as a support for when we're beginning. But then later on, they realize how difficult and how challenging the path is. And what do they do? They turn again to mechanical nature for the answer, for the comfort and security that mechanical nature is only too happy to provide. So while how we should view mechanical nature in our effort to reach the heavens, to reach the stars, what we should view mechanical nature as, as the multi-staged rocket, which provides us the vehicle to get to get us to higher levels. But as soon as a particular booster rocket has is no longer required, we need to be able to let it go. We need to discard it. It, it, it no longer serves a purpose. Mechanical nature must return to nature. Everything that mechanical nature gives us is, is subjective. It's We have to work with it while we are here because it is it is part of our journey and part of the vehicle and vessel but once we get to a certain level we have to eject we have to let go those aspects of ourselves in order to be able to continue our journey higher and higher but of course many cannot let go and many fall into traps that are set and are awaiting them by mechanical nature itself and this of course you know is one of them the magic mushrooms the psychedelics because again for some they need an on-ramp at the beginning like the training wheels they need a way to get on to the highway. We all need a way to, that, that we are introduced to the path, that we are introduced to the work, that we have our first spiritual experiences or, or whatever the case may be that, that got us, that we had that moment of clarity, that, that, that little awakening, that little shock, that conscious shock that, that aroused our sense of being to this notion of there's something higher, there's something more. And for some, that arises in them after they have their first psychedelic experience. But if we've asked this before, to get onto the highway, how many times do you take the on-ramp? 
Because if you keep taking the on-ramp, if you keep taking the on-ramp, you're going to be stuck here on the clover leaf. So mechanical nature is this double-edged sword. It's this dual, it's this duality. Yes, it's divine, but it and of itself cannot do the work. It's not divine. Mechanical nature cannot, cannot create divinity. Mechanical nature can only create subjective mechanical experiences. It can help us on our path. It can boost us like a booster rocket. But a booster rocket can't go into orbit. A booster rocket can, can get us to a certain level and then it has to detach and it has to fall away. The training wheels have to go. And like the cyclist in the Tour de France who's so attached to his training wheels, he needs a modern-day version of training wheels to compete so he can win. So what does he do? He shoots himself up with steroids, or he does blood doping, or whatever, and he cheats. It's exactly the same for people on the path who take psychedelics. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, they're trapped here on the clover leaf. They are cyclists in the Tour de France who are doping. The difference is, is that you can't hide from karma. You can't win the Tour de France. Like, you can't win the spiritual Tour de France like Lance Armstrong won the Tour de France while under the influence of steroids because they never caught him. Because you cannot trick Anubis and the Lords of Karma. You cannot dupe them into believing that you became a master authentically if what you all you've been doing is you know taking this uh, psilocybin. You've been stuck on the on-ramp. Just going, you've been stuck on the clover leaf, going around and around and around and around and around and around. And you remain stuck as an acorn, as a seed. Linda says, V-O-A-F-Y-I. Are we supposed to know what V-O-A stands for, Linda? Do enlighten us. F-Y-I we know, but V-O-A? Let us know what you mean by that. As for seed... Well, <laughs> those of us who have been around 
uh, our live streams for a while, knew this was uh, coming. Um, this is the poem we wrote about being a seed. And we often share this with people who, especially when they're being confronted with the truth and they're being very resistant to it. And we said, listen, we're only a messenger and there's really only one thing a messenger can do for you. When I awoke to find myself in the earth, bereft of truth and with so little mirth, nearby a cooing was a dove, small paws a stomping from above. Where is this place? I thought aloud. Right here, chirped back, a voice quite proud. Good sir, I begged, confused as hell. What is your name, kind sir? Do tell. Mercury, say some, some quicksilver. But to you, we seed, I am Ratatosker. Well met, good squirrel, might I inquire, why do you bury me in this mire? Tis my duty, we not, since you ask, to serve the ash my noble task. Running roots to branches leafy, I impart the word, albeit briefly. Then tell me, courier, goodly sprite, why do I suffer in this awful night? You fell from leaves, that much is true, and I, now I'm here to bury you. Then ask of them for me your charge, what is my place in the world at large? Bring a reply to a message, say you? We live to scamper, Oak Ash are you. And with that he was gone in much more than a dash. Before I could think, he was back in a flash. Don't ask us, say the leaves, we work for the bough. Shall I ask the branches if they know who art thou? By the time I said do so to my rascally friend, he returned with the news that might never end. They say it's not up to us, we work for the trunk. Yet me knows there's, there's an answer, so get out of your funk. But I, did, I, but I did not hear him. My spirits were sunk. How could I continue? On dismay was I drunk. Roots are my master, says the trunk on this day. As I depart again, let go your dismay. Just then I was moved, stoked fire by some bellow. What just happened, said I. Report, my good fellow. Relax, my dear seed, lest your shell become broken. Everything is fine. Need Hogger has spoken. Hidden is she in the three roots of Yggdrasil. This wisdom, declared she, I serve the great eagle. Then fly like the wind, dear rodent of fire, and answer the riddle, my one true heart's desire. With pleasure, my lord. And again he was gone. The heavens we serve, great eagle hath shone. But my shell, by my shell, this game is getting long in the tooth. Long is the path up Yggdrasil, forsooth. My apologies, my apologies, dear rascal. Radith Hosker, you knave! Beg pardon, good sir, good squirrel. Can time we not save? Does my speed not suffice, you impatient speck? Hear my sore paws and your pain in the neck. Forgive me, good messenger. But how will you ask the heavens to answer and be taken to task? Great Eagle hath asked them, and to me he conveyed. The earth was their answer, and 
to you now relayed. Good Lord, to rest will this never be laid? Thank you, good squirrel. May this great, great debt be repaid. So I asked the good earth surrounding myself if it would be so kind as to reveal my true self. We serve the sun, rumbled she mightily. Under command of the moon, she added begrudgingly. Good sun in the sky, will you not hear my call? Reveal my true purpose, oh why did I fall? Once again did the squirrel up the tree run and return with this answer, not just for fun, but surely our answer can only take you so far. Thus we return to the brotherhood of the star. So close did I feel to the answers I sought, yet so far were the stars great eagle or not. Relax, said Radatoskar, even though I do not. Patience and virtue are siblings, are they not? Back up do I fly, and great eagle thereafter, return to you I will, with news of hereafter. In good time my faithful messenger returned. The brotherhood serves space, was what he had learned. And who does space serve, I asked in a quip. Radatoskar departed his tail like a whip. Ages went by, countless lifetimes we confess. Space serves the light, no more and no less. Then surely, good messenger, the journey's near end. For whom but the light can the final word send? I shall up Yggdrasil again, dear Master Ash Essence, that you may realize at last, and of all this make sense. Strange patience welled up as never before. No longing or worry or thought for what was in store. Just sitting and waiting as I did before, not expecting a knock or to answer the door. Not thinking, not doing, no grandiose galore, just being an earth, no less and no more. Then out of the silence came a cooing the dove. We are whom the light serves. We are pure love. We've been in the new satum in seed within song. Fear not, son of ash, we've been with you all along. My shell it cracked open, my heart swelled like the sea. If a seed ever had eyes, mine cried joyous and free. The sun in my heart, the stars in solidarity, the inner Akash received limitless light within me. Great eagle above, his consort dragon below, faithful squirrel betwixt them, great mercury we know. Our prayer had been answered, our dread wanting belayed, great hell had come knocking and would not be delayed. Radatoskar gave hell two coins squirreled away. Into hell would we sink until at least the third day. We thank you, great dove, kind source of the light. We go in peace and enjoy without any fright. And die I did there, bathed in love's delight. With all of love's blessing, I passed into hell's night. Sometime later broke round a little we sprout. It struggled and suffered and grew itself out. Now we are here, an ash at love's behest, not thinking or doing, just being our best. No care in the world, but that of love's deeds. Radatoskar and I, here, planting more seeds.
mechanical nature is divine. But as it relates to one on the path of awakening and self-realization, mechanical nature is here to die. It is through the death of mechanical nature that divine nature can sprout, can take root within and through nature. And that is the mystery, the paradox, that nature is both divine and mechanical. And it oscillates between these two. But nature serves the light. And the, the relationship between mechanical and divine nature becomes more distinct and acutely expressed in that other great paradox of spirituality. Good and evil. Because like the question of nature, isn't, isn't all nature divine? The same question applies. Isn't it all good? Isn't it all God? So there really isn't any good and evil, is there? We talk about beyond good and evil. We talk about the Tao and beyond the Tao. We'll get into that in more detail. But we began with the first paradox because the first paradox informs the second paradox. God and the devil. <laughs> Satan, what, the adversary, evil, the, 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 the Black Lodge, the White Lodge and the Black Lodge, locked in eternal conflict. Shown here, arm wrestling. Are they really arm wrestling? Or are there two bros holding, greeting each other and holding hands? We'll leave that you to decide. But it's a problem. It's a par it's a it's a challenge that many people face, that many people struggle with. And they struggle with it. They struggle with it for various different reasons, but the well, we'll They struggle with it because they experience both within, within themselves and in, around themselves and in the world. And they're trying to make sense of how it is that 
God allows all this evil in the world to exist. And then along comes the Tao Te Ching, and they read that, and they said, okay, perfect balance, and beyond good and evil, and what's evil today can be good tomorrow, and all this, this, this constant motion and transformation and transmutation of one to the other. And they begin to arrive at nihilistic conclusions, that it's all good, that there really isn't anything called evil. If it, all, if, it, if it is all in the service of God, and there's no such thing as good and evil, and if it's all beyond good and evil, the truth of it all, then anything goes. And again, it's like where the mind, the ego mind, wants to go with this question of nature. Well, it's natural. It must be good. It must be fine. It's part of nature. God wouldn't have made it that way if he didn't intend, uh, intend us to behave that way, or God wouldn't have made magic mushrooms if he didn't intend us to take them. God wouldn't have created the orgasm if he didn't intend us to have the orgasm as much and as often as possible. <clears throat> and yet, any true initiate on the spiritual path must give pause and say, really? It's possible for a man to rape a woman? Ergo, men should rape women as much and as often as possible? Or that pedophilia seems to be a thing? But because it's all good, there's no such thing as good and evil, then why should pedophilia be illegal? There are people arguing that as we speak in Supreme Courts in the United States at the state level. It has not yet escalated to the Supreme level, but it's already in the state level in the Supreme Courts in the United States. That pedophilia is just another sexual orientation. It's that the P belongs in the alphabet club. LGBTQ plus S whatever, how many other, we can't keep up with the letters, but, but we're watching the P letter carefully. There are, because this is, you know, it's not evil. It's just another sexual orientation. We are all made in the image and likeness of God. Ergo, if someone is born interested in younger flesh, then surely that's natural and that's God intended them to be that way. You, you can see the inherent dangers in, in allowing the mind to, to run with these paradoxes. Then we get to 
positive and negative. There are countless, countless books, not just in the New Age movement, but in the self-help movement, in the business management movement, in the coaching, you name it, uh, for weight loss, for, for success, financial success, everything. This whole idea that you must focus on the positive. You have to be positive and be positive and be positive and be positive. And positive thoughts and positive emotions and positive this and positive that. And positive affirmations. Positive, 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 positive. Interesting how that is. That a moment ago, the ego mind was rationalizing evil, that there's no such thing as good and evil, that it's all good, that we're beyond good and evil, and that we can allow things like pedophilia and, you know, rape and war and all sorts of things, because it's all God, it's all good. And yet, that same ego mind can turn around and say, oh yeah, but... To manifest what you want, got to be positive and focus on the positive and focus on the positive. Oh, yes, and harness the sexual energy and use the orgasm to focus on what you want and be positive and, and, and to get what you want and get what you desire. How, how do they square that? Where they're going to avoid all the negative here, but then over here, they... There's no, they have no problems with it. There's, there is no negative. All of a sudden, there is no negative. Again, you, you can, you see the danger. You see the problem. We spoke earlier of the yogis, who go off into the mountain to avoid, precisely to avoid this negative. To avoid the world, the negativity in the world. They want a safe space. Here, here's what we need to get stronger, right? We need to lift the weight. Here's what we need to do. Right? We need to climb the mountains. This is not easy. This is not easy. That mountain is not being positive at every step of the way. That mountain is trying to kill you. It's trying to make you fall. But if it wasn't trying to make you fall, how could you become a master mountaineer? What are you becoming a master of? What's the point of becoming a master of something that's easy to master. Is there even such a thing? Think of, think of something that's really, really easy that everybody can do. Like, I don't know, like chewing gum. Is there such a thing as a master gum chewer? We don't know of such a thing. Perhaps there is, but we've never heard of it. 
Is there a master of going to the bathroom? Is, it, is going to the bathroom something that one masters? We're uh, assuming you're referring to individuals, uh, the, the, the P individuals. Um, best, uh, Dylan says, best thing that could happen <clears throat> to this world is for those disgusting monsters to be exposed, to come to the light. The mountains sound pretty good right now. <clears throat> we'll just, we'll leave that comment stand as it is, Dylan. We don't think there's anything we can, we should add to that. Coming back to our mountain climber here. Yes, lifting weights in the gym, climbing mountains. Is there something we can point to? Is there an example, an analogous phenomenon that we can point to? that explains away this paradox and expresses why it is that good and evil must exist. Consider, consider the following. These are some slides that we presented at uh, the SPPCA conference at University of Toronto. And don't ask us what SPPCA, it's a sustainability something, something. We can't remember what the ridiculous name of the conference was. Anyway, well, this is two years ago now that we presented this, but the alm of water is the analogous ultimate methodology of water. I mean, we've spoken about the alm of life in the past. This is the alm of life as it applies to water. Water, of course, has a cycle and has many forms that it can take many it, there's many forms of water so we're going to focus on the alm of learning of water and there are a number of different books a number of different authors for example Masuru Emoto, which we're sure you're aware of this, applied different phrases to uh, pe di pe not petri dishes, beakers, beakers of water in a laboratory. He, he put phrases on labels on those beakers. And he allowed 
and then he looked at that water under a microscope. Or he would freeze the water and look at the crystals of the frozen water. And what he discovered was polluted water, obviously looked as one might expect polluted water to look. Um, here's dam water, Fujiwara dam water before prayer. And here it is after prayer. Oops. You guys can barely see that, can't you? Here, let me make that much bigger. Okay. Um, and here's Beethoven's pastoral music, love and appreciation, thank you, spring water. And look at heavy metal music. Look at the chaotic structure of the water. Look at the, the here's, look, here's the, uh, you make me sick, you fool right and let's face it you fool is not the worst thing you can say but when we say words have power and words have meaning it's not just the meaning that we ascribe to them unless you're suggesting that this water went to school and learned what you fool means in school or was condition somehow to learn what you fool means or what you make me sick means so the postmodernists have it completely wrong when they say that oh all language is uh just based on conditioned meaning it's no no we call it spelling for a reason and this is the reason why we don't listen to heavy metal music anymore we used to when it wasn't good good for us we only listen to classical music now. We don't listen to modern garbage. We don't put garbage into our consciousness. We don't put garbage into our system. This phenomena was uh, also noted by others and that this they call it water having a memory so the water gets exposed to and that is also happens to be the basis for uh what's that called no it'll come to me it's not hydrotherapy it's uh it's a practice of washing things with water over and over and over again and then and then they use the water is the medicine because the water take on takes on the properties of what it was encountered with um there's a term for it it's just not coming to mind someone can someone in the chat can maybe help me with that um but yeah it's the ability for of water to be able to to express the power the characteristics the beauty the of whatever it comes into contact with and that happens on on a vibrational energetic level this is also you can find information about this in rudolf steiner's uh, outline of esoteric science then there's this book called uh called energizing water the uh, uh the power of flow form technology and again that's what rudolf steiner was also writing about and that the that the movement and motion of water itself can organize and create structured water and then there's this other great book 
called Understanding Water, Developments of the Work of Theodore Schwenk. And really, what all of this is getting, getting down to and getting around to, that's it. Thank you, Andrea. It's homeopathy. <laughs> Thank you. Homeopathy is the practice of taking water and washing it over and over and over and over again. Uh, some, well, something that has particular healing properties or particular qualities, characteristics. And then they create, using that water, they exact the exact process. We don't know exactly how they do it, but they'll end up creating a pill that has this structured crystalline water structure in it that supposedly helps. Um, but it's all based on the memory of water and the capacity for water to be structured based on its experiences. Water structured based on experience. So let's look at a very practical example of this. Baffling. And we use this word in life, right? Life is baffling, is it not? Like these paradoxes are baffling. Baffling is used in water purification systems because water becomes structured and structured energized water improves the efficiency and efficacy in septic systems, wastewater management, treatment, sediment basins, and of course, indoor ecosystems, which is Peapod Life, where, which is where our experience with baffles and baffling comes from. And you can see the water interacting with the obstacles, the baffles, right? The baffling. And each time it does, it gains, right? It's like each, every time the water interacts with those baffles, it's like it's lifting weights in the gym. It has to overcome those baffles. And it's that flow form that energizes the water and structures the water and, and gives it energy and capacity to fulfill its purpose, to, to self-actualize at its level of being, which is water. We were talking about the elements, like the ele the elements in on Friday, and so the physical element of water has so many qualities and characteristics and capacities and abilities which we take for granted. But its capacities and abilities are enhanced, energized. Why? How? By experiencing such flow forms as you see before you here by overcoming baffles that which is baffling to water so this is the analogous ultimate methodology of baffling and you can see how in 
depleted unstructured water pollutants easily easily find their way and stagnate and and make water putrid and nasty and horrible however structured hexagonal water is mineral water it's not pollutants in it but but minerals that are able to be carried in the water so spring water mountain that's why mountain spring water is so alive and refreshing and energizing because the only thing that can be diluted into unstructured depleted water is pollution but structured hexagonal water can carry life-giving essential minerals trace minerals and again here's a photo by dr emoto comparing the two is the 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 crystalline structure of water on the left depleted dead water and on the right energized alive water and it's the baffling which does that that which opposes and obstructs the flow of water sound familiar we also use baffles in our indoor ecosystems with peapod life so what is true for water is true for life self-evident experiential knowledge which is gnosis in greek and the antithesis is of course hypnosis and ignorance So whether you're learning computers or the piano or how to fly a plane or you're working out in the gym or you're studying, you're, you're, you're learning anything mentally or you are, try, you are trying to achieve anything in any capacity, in any human endeavor, there is only one way you can do so. You must experience tests trials and ordeals you must constantly face that which is difficult that which is challenging you must constantly push the limits of your abilities it is the only way the analogous ultimate methodology of learning the analogous ultimate methodology of baffling the analogous ultimate methodology of the spiritual path All phenomena grow, develop and grow in this way. Evolution works in this way. Even Darwin's erroneous natural selection process works in this way. Because if there are changes in the environment, only those organisms that encounter those changes and grow and develop to overcome them evolve. Those that don't go extinct. So let's look at how this applies practically in modern society. Look to our children. What are we teaching children these days? How are we raising children, especially here in the West? Here's a young child on a farm. 
Do any of you see anything wrong with this image? We originally were going to show images from the past, but there's so much, all the, all those images were in articles talking about slave labor and child labor and, and all these wrong things they used to do to children. Well, here's what they do to children today. Is this normal? Is this going to help develop a strong generation? Is this going to develop a strong, hardy generation of human beings? Or this? Comprehending what you know about water. What we just looked in water. This, and that is self-evident experiential knowledge applied to baffles, baffling and learning across all human endeavor. Is this serving humanity or our children? By the way, if you can't make that out, those children are bubble wrapped. <laughs> They're waiting to get into the minivan, presumably. Now, with all of that understood and it's unquestionable. When one actually observes the experiential knowledge of it, water becomes putrid and dies, poisoned, cancerous, useless, worthless, unless it goes through that natural system of baffling. By the way, nature does this with brooks and rivers and rapids. And all the ways in which nature can create structured living water through flow forms. We are, what is it, 70 to 90% water? Just our physical vessels, just our, our bodies are mostly water. So with all that recognized, understood, seen, experienced, because we've all have experienced something along the lines of this learning, whether it's computers, whether it's piano, whether it's flying a plane or driving a car or working out in the gym, or it doesn't matter. We all know this to be true what is on this screen. And we all know that this is better than this. We all know that. This, we don't understand that. We don't think that. We don't believe that. We know it. We know it like we know it like we know it because it's self-evident. Now, let us return to this question of good and evil. And let us use the analogy, the analogous allegory that so perfectly encapsulates 
and embodies the experience in Malkuth here, the kingdom of good versus evil, of the White Lodge versus the Black Lodge. The whole world is in chess. Chess is the microcosm for what happens in the world and indeed within ourselves. And you don't have to play chess. You don't have to be able to master chess. It's not what this is about. You just have to comprehend that it is a game of position, of conquest, win, lose, or draw. There's three conditions that a chess game ends. Win, lose, or draw. Now we come back to this question of the Tao and good and evil and beyond good and evil. To answer this question, again, let us put ourselves in a mindset of practical, experiential knowledge. This is what the chessboard looks like from the point of view of the black pieces of darkness, of evil, of the opponent, the adversary. All they see is their opponent's pieces. It's all they care about because they are mechanical pieces. They are mechanical nature. They work for mechanical nature. They have programs. Fear, fears. Lust, lusts. Anger, rages. Envy, envies. And all they see, like any predator, like any parasite, all they see are pieces to take and position to gain on the board. Pieces to take and position to gain, to control the board. Now, let us look at the board. From White's perspective, do you see any difference? Despite the fact that now we are looking upon the black pieces, but do you, do you, do you see a difference between black looking at white and the light side looking at the darkness? We'll give you a hint. We'll give you a hint. In this image, where are the black pieces? 
in this image, can you see the white pieces? That's the difference. That's the difference. The adversary has no, nothing to gain by knowing themselves. A parasite only is absorbed with what they want, what they have to gain, what is out there, because they are empty inside. There's nothing there. Here, the White Lodge sees, the White Lodge is coming from the perspective of the player. Here, the Black Lodge, the pieces on the board, believe themselves to be the player. They are the player. Here, the White Lodge knows themselves, and they know that the pieces on the board are just pieces on a chessboard, and that the opponent, the adversary, has their pieces. But they're, they're, there's no enemy behind those pieces. There's no enemy there. It's just baffles. It's just baffling. Evil is necessary. The adversary is necessary. You cannot play the game without the adversary. But the nature of the adversary is that it's mechanical. Whereas we are meant to be conscious and aware. And aware that we're playing a game. The adversary, we are prey. We are gazelle on a Serengeti. We are, we are a doe in the forest and they are the tick that's going to latch on to that doe and suck its blood, its life force and maybe give it Lyme disease. But you see, this is the black, this is how the Black Lodge sees us and sees the game. It's, it's a space to control. The board, is they're here to control the board. They're here to control the board and to take pieces.
and the White Lodge sees the game and sees the pieces and knows that we are not the pieces. We are the player. So in essence, in essence, the game board is like playing chess against the computer. The computer just knows that it's programmed to win. It's programmed to defeat its opponent. But the computer is heartless, mindless, soulless. It's just fulfilling its program. Like the baffle is just baffling. It's just doing what its, what its job is there to energize and aliven and, and allow the water to become all that it can be, to self-realize, to self-actualize itself as the best, most energized, most alive, most capable water in the world. But the baffles, from their point of view, they're just here to stop water. They're just here to be shit disturbers to water. They just want to stop the water. That's all the baffles think about. Because that's all the baffles are. Baffling. It's all that lust cares about. Lusting. It's all that greed cares about. Hoarding and accumulating and amassing. Right? So, right, well, so when we see photographs like this one, okay, when we see depictions of a chessboard like this one, right, we see all the pieces neatly, everything perfectly put into opposite, everything else, oh, look how beautiful the symmetry is and how everything else and blah, blah, blah. And then we, we you know, we look at all this and, and then romantically, there's the Tao. There's the chessboard as a perfect Tao expression, right? The perfect balance. That's horseshit. What you see here can never exist on a chessboard. These pieces have been arranged in a way that does not exist in reality. Comprehend that. You cannot arrive ever in a game of chess at this position that's on this, that's being shown here. As beautiful and as symmetrical and as balanced as this is, this is not real. This is completely contrived and manufactured. It cannot exist. You cannot have these pieces arranged this way on a chessboard ever. In an abstract, pure, beyond way, sure, the Tao is there. And the Tao, we're not trying to diss the Tao here. 
what we're trying to do is be practical. And that you can say that there's beyond good and evil, that there's an adversary but not an enemy, and all of this stuff in the abstract, beyond, in the absolute, in Kater, in the world of archetypes. But you and I, we're here now in the world, on the chessboard, playing the game. And here and now, this does not apply. It does not apply here and now in this way. You cannot apply it in this way here and now. Because the reality is, is that this is how our opponent sees us. As prey. And they have been designed, programmed, divinely ordained to be baffles and to be baffling to test, to try, to oppose, to obstruct, to be the adversary. If you are playing a game of chess and you are trying to arrive at this, you'll never, you'll, you can never win. You will never even draw. You will lose every time because this is impossible in the game. Beyond the game, of course, this is the Tao. The Tao is beyond good and evil because the Tao is the foundation in the world of archetypes, in, ab in the absolute. But people struggle with this paradox of good and evil and they want to bring the Tao down to earth and say it's all perfect, it's all balanced, it's all good. They want to make of life this position you see here on the chessboard and it cannot happen. This is complete and total ignorance of reality. This is not enlightenment. This is ignorance. We must be practical. We must be like water. Water knows that the baffles are baffling. And water knows that the more baffles it overcomes, the better and stronger it will be. This is reality. This is the balance. This is the perspective that is beyond good and evil. The reality that good and evil are real and required and necessary in order to play the game. To play the game is necessary to master it. And one cannot master anything 
without an opponent, without an adversary, without an obstacle, without a test, a trial, or or ordeal. So with this question of good and evil and mechan uh, divine and mechanical nature, it is not a binary duality sort of mentality that we need, that good is good and evil is bad. Because, of course, when you are facing evil, you must overcome evil. And you need to face the evil and overcome the evil in order to grow, in order to develop. And that ultimately says, well, that, but then that ultimately evil is good. Because it's part of that game. It's you, you need it. It needs to be there. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It does exist. And it doesn't mean that its nature is not evil. No, it is evil. Because a baffle is a baffle. A baffle can only be a baffle. A baffle does what it does. It baffles. It's baffling. It is what it is. It is what it is. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. There is another paradox that people face in the spiritual path or religious path. And that is the paradox of hell, damnation, eternal torment, this notion like, is this really a thing in a universe that's created by a loving and forgiving God? Like, how is this, how is this a thing? How can this, many people struggle with this. And Well, here we have one of many countless artistic depictions of hell. We unfortunately we we don't know who painted it. Um, but let's let's for a moment use this as our backdrop. We've shown you this before. Um, recently in the uh, live stream about feeding the soul and the elements. As we progress as a monad from the mineral kingdom through the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, and the humanoid kingdom, right? We begin by being inserted as a monad into the mineral kingdom. And we, we follow the upward arc of evolution through these different levels with the goal of achieving conscious evolution in the higher kingdoms that's the sixth dimension and higher 
which we can only achieve by working in the humanoid kingdom. But if we remain trapped in the fifth dimension and below, in the four bodies of sin, the mental body, emotional body, vital body, and physical body, and we remain identified with those bodies, and we, ne we never develop the human soul, we never awaken in sixth dimension, then we fall into devolution down through the human, the animal, the plant, and mineral kingdom. At which point, once we've completely devolved in the mineral kingdom, we will again be reinserted in the mineral kingdom to begin the, the journey all over again. Now, this, if you notice, I'll do it here because we can do it slower. This is a wheel. This is a cycle. And this, we can proceed on this cycle of evolution and devolution as a monad eternally. This is the only aspect of hell which is eternal. This is suffering. Yes, we could say the Ouroboros, Roy, yep, of the snake, the serpent that eats its tail. And the reason why it's eating its tail is that the serpent represents the sexual force. It's a divine mother, but she's eating her tail because, well, she can go either way, good or evil, right? Mechanical or divine nature. This is all mechanical nature. Divine nature is here. Divine nature is when we leave behind mechanical nature, but we use mechanical nature as the springboard, right? As the, the training wheels, as the booster rocket to get us to this point that we can then develop our divine nature and get off the wheel of samsara or the... the the bhava chakra in tibet the wheel of becoming but this is the only eternal aspect of hell and this is hell because this is all suffering this is suffering this is the harsh cruel indifferent world of mechanical nature Right, the the jungle, the the, the 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 you know the sharks on the reef, the you know the the predators on the Serengeti. I mean, it's it you know, this is this is pain and suffering, and coldness and harshness and all the rest of it, and of course all the suffering that the egos create for us, which of course work for mechanical nature. 
But what about this physical hell and this fire and this torment and everything else? Well, how does that play into all of this? Well, at the center of the planet is a molten core. Tremendous heat, tremendous pressure. And the monads belong to this planet are, are we, we mentioned this, how all the cells in our body all have monads, all the atoms in, our, in those cells all, are, all have monads. But we are all connected karmically to this planet. We are all related to this cosmic family. So the cycle of a monad being born into the, into the mineral kingdom. Have you ever seen a volcano birthing stone? Because that's where stone comes from. That's where minerals come from. They are born out of this planet out of its, the fiery crucible at its center, they come up as molten magma, and once they breach the surface, we call it lava. And then it hits the ocean or the cold air, the ocean, and then it solidifies and it becomes lava rock and all the various different forms of stone and, and that, that exist in that magma, in that lava, that were formed under tremendous heat and pressure. We chose the following image. It's not the best, but we chose it because it's an image of hell, but what looks like it could be a monad. If you can imagine or visualize a monad, uh, a, a, a vessel that's been overrun with egos, and it's and it's it's it it needs to be cleansed of those egos. So it descends into hell to be cleansed. And people, people think of hell or they want to think of hell as, as punishment, as retribution, as, as judgment and condemnation. But really, really, it's as simple as if you and I cannot liberate ourselves from our egos consciously using the the path of spirituality working with our divine mother and our sexual energy the, the intelligent way and working with the elements and the elementals and working with our divine with our mechanical nature in a divine way to get us to develop our divine nature using the mechanical nature as the training wheels and as the base and as the booster rocket. If we are unable to liberate ourselves and free our monad from the infestation of those parasites, those egos that again, work for mechanical nature and are trying to drag us back down to mechanical nature. Well, if we are unable to do that in 108 lifetimes in the human kingdom, mechanical nature has a way to clean that monad, our monad, for us. But it 
mechanical nature, obviously, has to do it mechanically. And that's what the core of the earth and monads that end up in the core of the earth under tremendous heat and pressure, those egos, those parasites, are burned away from those monads. And what is the analogous process for us to explain and understand this with so that it's not a paradox? Like, why would God create this place of hellfire and torment and everything else? Because he's not, it's not about retribution. It's not about making us suffer. It's not about condemnation. It's not about judgment. It's not about any of those things. It's simply about we had our chance. We had our opportunity. We were given all the opportunity to defeat the opponent, the adversary, on the chessboard and rid ourselves of these parasites, these egos, the fear, the lust, the anger, the greed, and all the rest of it. But we failed to do so. So now, nature's going to take matters into her own hands, and out of love and out of compassion, Mother Nature, but in her mechanical form, Kali, the destroyer of worlds, is going to apply tremendous heat and, and tremendous pressure to the monad in a, in a sort of radical step to eradicate the malware that's infecting, that's infesting and infecting our hard drive. If your hard drive is overrun with computer viruses and malware, and you buy all the anti-malware, antivirus software that you can think of, and you try running all the antivirus software on your hard drive, and you maybe buy one of those, those sticks, those USB sticks from the internet that you're supposed to plug it into your computer and it's supposed to completely wipe your system clean of any and all malicious software. And you try all that and you do all that. And at the end of it all, your computer is still infested and still infected. Well, even a computer technician will tell you there's only one course of action you can take. Wipe the hard drive, format the hard drive, and you wipe everything. You reformat, you restructure. And remember what we said about water and the, the structured hexagonal structured water that happens through baffling? If the monad is so filled up with garbage and so infected and infested, and it's, it's now like the water in uh, Emoto's photographs that we're listening to rock music, 
and it doesn't have that beautiful crystalline structure. It doesn't have that beautiful hexagonal structure with which to hold on to experiential knowledge. But it's like the polluted water. It's all just polluted water. It's all filled with pollutants and it's stagnant and it's putrid. Well, it's mercy. It's mercy to reformat, to restructure that water. But a monad is not water. A monad needs a more severe, a more... It needs heat and it needs pressure to be restructured and to erase all the traumas, all the negative conditioning, all the bad, all the evil, all the egos, all the mechanical nature's influences on it. And now mechanical nature is going to reorganize and re... It's going to eradicate all of those influences. And what will end up being inserted into the mineral kingdom through a volcanic eruption is going to be a monad that is clean and fresh, like a fresh install of windows. And it's going to be reinserted into the mineral kingdom to, 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 to try again. Now, is it painful? Is there suffering involved? Is it difficult? Yes. No doubt. But again, like the baffling that creates the energized, structured, living water, that pain, that suffering, that, that torment serves a purpose and it's, it serves the monad. It serves that individuated essence of God. It's severe, like formatting a hard drive is severe, but it's mercy at the same time. Because to allow the monad to continue on suffering and to keep digging itself deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into hell, that's what's not merciful. That's what's cruel and unusual, to allow somebody to keep digging a hole deeper and deeper and deeper into hell. Because hell is not just a place. Hell is also a, a psychological state. This image of hell we chose because it shows a bodhisattva. And it shows what we see as a portal and what we see as a monad and uh, monads that are escaping up out of hell. And it is the task of every bodhisattva, every, every resurrected master, to first die and descend into hell, as Jesus did. And it is in hell that they are freeing monads trapped there and offering them repentance, and offering them a way out of hell. And the Bodhisattva accomplishes this through the karmic credits they possess and that they are gaining by descending into hell. 
because karma, this does relate to the Tao, but again, those higher levels, higher planes of existence, the balance, right? The balancing of karma, the great scales must balance because the two forces must ultimately be in balance. So the White Lodge works to maintain that balance, but also through mercy, through compassion, the White Lodge is able to, because masters and resurrected masters and ascended masters have so much karmic credits at their disposal that they are able to reincarnate, they are able to suffer, they are able to endure tremendous suffering as Master Abramento did as Jesus of Nazareth and endure the crucifixion and and endure all that suffering and in doing so in facing all those baffling all that baffling all that evil they they gain the that energy that structure that that those benefits that strength of having lifted that cross so many times on his, on 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 their back that they now have the strength to descend into hell itself and face the evil there and liberate monads from the karmic burden of actually having to go through hell they can't liberate everybody but no bodhisattva, no master, no teacher can help everybody. There is no paradox here. There is no paradox between hell and heaven. If there's, this is not, it's everything that, you know, religions teach or people have heard or people believe or they've been conditioned to believe about hell is, 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 it's not eternal. It's not eternal damnation. Again, what's eternal is by choice. The wheel of samsara, a monad can be stuck on that eternally, but that's by choice because they keep making the same mistakes, even though every time they have a clean start. They have a fresh start. When they make it into that human kingdom, they don't take advantage of the possibilities and the opportunities to let go of mechanical nature. And so they, they just keep repeating the same thing over and over. So what about the self? How is it that I am not who I think I am? None of us are who we think we are. How is it that... How is it that we can be here and yet 
this be a false self? And yet, how can we be aware that we're here, be aware of this body, be aware of this mind, our thoughts, and observe everything around us, and still be asleep, still be ignorant of our higher self, of our true self? And not only that, but ignorant of the logos, the being of beings, because there's levels and levels. This is this paradox or apparent paradox <clears throat> leads to that erroneous belief that people have that they are gods already. Again, going all the way back full circle to the to the discussion of mechanical nature. And that, that this I, this level of consciousness, is, is God. It's a paradox to the mind only because the mind is incapable of knowing through experience. The mind only believes, the mind is conditioned to think, to believe. The mind cannot know. So again, this is a apparent paradox. But it's one that the ego mind so cleverly takes advantage of, as all of these so-called paradoxes. And it creates out of these paradoxes, even as we try to peel them back, it takes and it creates a dangerous banana peel to slip on. Because at the end of the day, all of those new agers and all of those people taking those psychedelics And they have those trips and they're going through universe and they're doing this and they're doing that and they and they're experiencing themselves and they've left their body they're okay with that they can they can they're okay with that but they they don't because they're experiencing this subjectively, they believe now that their personality and their, their, and even though they claim that they, on psychedelics, they experience the dropping away of ego and all this kind of stuff, but it's still them. They believe that they can ascend. but we don't ascend. This personality belongs to mechanical nature. This personality is like Jarvis in the Iron Man suit. It belongs to the character, the persona, which means mask. 
facade. But then where is the where is the self then? If he's not if if I'm not the self, then who is the self or where is the self? And what to see that the mind trips up all of this. It really depends on the level of our being and whether or not we are awake. Because if we are awake, then we know ourselves. We know that this personality and the persona and the egos that we have, we see them as such. Remember when we were looking at the chessboards? Remember how the Black Lodge sees? You remember how the White Lodge sees? The consciousness that even that we have even when we're asleep is everything is out there. We're all focused out there. We're focused on what we want, on our desires. Like the Black Lodge looking at the white pieces. We're focused on what we want. And we can never get enough because there's a void inside of us. We don't know ourselves. There's a void inside of us and, and, and this I that we think we are is simply the mechanical programming of the black pieces which we are identified with. Consciousness is asleep. Being our player is just watching this nightmarish scenario unfolding on the board. And the player has very little ability to influence not to move the pieces. He can influence through intuition, through insight, through gut feeling, many, many, many ways. And our Divine Mother, of course, as we've discussed in the past, can orchestrate all sorts of circumstances in our lives. But if we're seeing the game through the eyes of the black pieces, then we're actually seeing the moves of our innermost being and our Divine Mother as our opponent. So when we search, are searching for comfort and security, And when we want only positivity and we're avoiding negativity, 
We don't want to deal with difficult people. We don't want to deal with toxic people. We don't want to deal with all this bad and all this evil in the world. The irony is that all of that are the white pieces. They're being moved by our Divine Mother. Because when we're asleep, we are playing the game and seeing the board game, the chess game, from the point of view of the black pieces. And our innermost being and our Divine Mother are moving the white pieces. But the black pieces, the white pieces, are the enemy, are the, are the prey, are the things to take and the position to gain. This is a very tempting sentiment, Dylan. Love yourself. Of course, love yourself. But if you love yourself too much, in other words, which self are you referring to when you say love yourself? We have to be practical and work with the allegories that we are working with to really comprehend these paradoxes and really climb our way out of hell. We're not sure how easily we can uh, go back, but again, we're gonna we're gonna jump back here if, if we can. If we can. Okay. Remember this view versus this view. Earlier, Dylan asked, so why is it that a majority of human, uh, uh, human nature is so confrontational, brutal, self-centered, if we are all made in God's perfect image? Okay, this is why, Dylan. Because humanity plays the game of chess from this perspective, from this point of view, because humanity is asleep and is motivated by its desires, its cravings, and its aversions. Desire is ego. Desire is the Black Lodge. When we are asleep, we are the adversary. 
and everything that happens to us, if we remain asleep, we keep seeing the board like this, instead of like this. This is awake. This is asleep. Now we see, aha, I have my pieces, right? I have my bodies, my, my physical body, my vital body, my emotional body, my mental body. And there, on the other side of the board, are all my egos. They're trying to take control of the board my being, my life. And they're trying to, and they're they're trying to steal my sexual energy. They're trying to take my pawns, my pieces, my elements, my that which which I have to work with and play the game. The Black Lodge wants to take it for itself and wants to control the board. The Black Lodge wants to defeat me. When we play the game from this point of view, we are awakening. And if we take it one step further and say, yes, I, I am the player. And when we awaken to that, Then you, you know, I'm the player or we are the player. There is no paradox. The paradox is the mind's inability to use its conscious imagination and to visualize this. that good and evil, right, good and bad, to the Black Lodge, the White Lodge, is evil. And the Black Lodge is good. What the Black Lodge wants is good. To take pieces and to gain control of the board is good, isn't it? Isn't it good to eliminate ego? and gain control of your life? Isn't that good? Isn't it good to take what you want and gain control and get control of your life by taking what you want and controlling everything? Isn't that good? Now, we start to appreciate what beyond good and evil means and what the Tao means. Through experience, but not this bullshit experience that people want to believe this can never happen. 
one experiences and awakens to the Tao, one comprehends, when one awakens and one realizes that up until now, I've been living life like this. And all of a sudden, one day, I start waking life, living life like this. Because ultimately, in an abstract way, life is like this, but it'll never look like this in real life. And the reality is that this is what life is. Life is baffling. Okay. We're going to... So, this apparent paradox of self, again, is just a paradox. But it is a real, tangible reality for each of us. And that board game, that chess game, is happening inside of us. Because there are many people who look at their conscience as the enemy. And they, they silence the voices of reason, the voice of conscience, the voice of compassion, the voice of kindness. They, they silence these voices inside of them. Because they want to follow the voices of desire, of cravings and aversions, of comfort and security, of lust, of greed. Those are the voices that they follow. And they have, they have the right to do so. They have the free will to do so. Finally, the paradox of the perfect multiple unity. How is God, I am that I am, but not an I? God is not an I. And yet, I am that I am is the holy name of God. Well, how, the, how do you square this one oops <laughs> i gave it away i gave it away all right well let's let's uh forego all the theatrics and the uh dramatic build-up and anything and let's just what is this can anybody tell me what this is how is this a thing how is this possible? This is a symphony orchestra complete with a choir. And perhaps the better question to ask is, can you imagine the beauty, the majesty, the profundity of any of the great symphonies or operas without this?
without a symphony, without harmony, without melody, without a multitude, a multiplicity of individuated players all playing their unique instruments and their unique roles. We can take any theatrical production, any Shakespearean production, even, even a, a film for that matter, and is it not true that such collaborative forms of art are an expression, a microcosmic expression of the perfect multiple unity that they, that these collaborative experiences, these creative works of genius, of imagination, of passion, come to life day after day, evening after evening, against all odds, all those musicians, all of their suffering and preparation and training and practice and rehearsals and auditions and, and everything they go through, the, the, the repetitive strain injury, the, the, all the sacrifices that they made. And they all come together and they produce perfection. Perfection. Night after night after night after night. And sure, we can we can say, well, it's the composer. Yes, composer wrote the music. But what about the interpretation? What about the unique sound of that auditorium? What about the conductor and the time the conductor spent with the orchestra, rehearsing, preparing? The conductor's nuanced expression of the composer's vision. Priscilla says, V-O-T dot F-Y-I. You know, earlier... Linda said VOA dot FYI, and now we have a VOT dot FYI. Are we supposed to know what VOA and VOT mean, or do we, are we going to have to look this up? Uh, all I've, all we get is Voice of America, English News, and VOT, all we get is 
BOT Radio, Vanguard, Midcap Stocks. Okay, so Google can't help us. So if either of you care to explain what VOA and VOT is, we're all ears. In the meantime, back to the topic at hand. The paradox of the multiplicity. You, we, can, we, we spoke about this on Friday when we talked about the fact that you and I, if we look at our bodies... We are one being, are we not? And yet we know that we are not one being. We are a multiplicity of trillions of cells, trillions of individual beings, and each one has a monad. And beyond that, we can go even further, we can go even deeper, and there are literally countless atoms so, and each cell has organelles, and those organelles function inside of a cell the same way that the organs function inside of our body. And those organs have beings. Those organs are monads. The monads made up of monads? No. The organ is a physical thing that has a monad that is made up of countless trillions of cells which have themselves monads. There are levels and levels and levels and levels and levels. And just, just because we make it into these supernal worlds in the sixth dimension and create our human soul doesn't mean that we've broken free of these levels. The levels keep going. Because as we said, the co a cosmo creator is a being at the heart of a planet. But how many beings are on that planet? How many human beings are on the planet Earth? What, we're up to 7 billion now? 8 billion? 9 billion? And each one of those have a monad. But then... Each one of those human beings are made up of trillions of cells, and they all have monads. What about the trees? What about the animals? What about, it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And yet, do not the cells in our body follow a direction? When we're running in one direction, are not all the cells and organs in our body working in this incredible harmonious way to carry us forward in that one direction? Where's the paradox? Where's the paradox in the symphony? How is God one thing and everything? How is your body one organ, one being and trillions of beings? How is that? It is. It is what it is. It's not a paradox. It's practical. It's here and now. And from a biological perspective, how could it be anything else? When we're shedding literally millions and millions and millions of skin cells every minute, we're just shedding them. They're just dying and shedding off of us. Beings, monads. And new ones are growing and new ones are, and, and these, these things are replicating. It's life. We are a microcosm. We have symbiotic relationships. We have an ecosystem 
in our body. We have symbiotic relationships with bacteria. How is this a paradox? So this is really one for the atheists who say, well, how is God everywhere? And how is God one thing and everything and blah, 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 blah. It's just, it's just self-evident. It really is. You don't have to understand it. Just go to the symphony. Go to the symphony and say, okay, I get it now. You just have to experience it and be awake and go, oh, my God, it's everything. It's every, it's every play. It's every, it's every factory. It's every construction site with different people, with different skills and different abilities, different talents, different, different trades, all coming together to build something. And create something to play something to share something and what they build what they create what they share what they do is greater than the sum of the parts and all the beings who are participating in that experience, including the audience, because they are a part of that experience. They are bringing their energy as the audience to that orchestra. As one who has performed on stage, theatrically, we can testify that the energy of the audience is absolutely what we work with. It is the paint that we paint with on the stage. It is the audience's energy. They bring that to the table. Nothing is better than opening night in the theater. It doesn't matter how many times you've rehearsed and performed in rehearsal. Your performance in rehearsal can't hold a candle to your performance on opening night in front of the in front of a, a packed house for the first time because you finally have a full palette of energy to work with we have a few minutes left this evening so we'll open it up to uh, questions. We hope that uh, we've done justice to tonight's topic. And again, we urge you to, in your life, in your day-to-day, -day, go through with an open mind, an open consciousness, a receptive consciousness to the living, breathing word of God, which is all around us. Everything is an expression of the analogous ultimate methodology. The analogous ultimate methodology is at the heart of all phenomena, including ourselves. 
so these apparent paradoxes high level or whatever anytime we encounter something which is problematic to the mind the consciousness can find the analogous phenomena which will resolve that conflict if we are open to it because the consciousness is a superior faculty and experiential knowledge is a superior faculty to intellectual speculation self-evident experiential knowledge it is what it is you cannot deny it if you deny it you are insane you are a lunatic a lunatic is one whose mind is governed by mechanical egos by divine nature by the moon go back and listen to our live stream on lunacy lunacy in the age of deception i believe it was called um and how the moon governs mechanical nature and that's why we call people lunatics when their their whole mind is like that model covered in those 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 mechanical bits and baubles all over their body they do what's fashionable they, they follow desire they follow craving and aversion mechanically but the consciousness is superior and the consciousness can see that's what it means to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and then all of a sudden you will see the so-called paradoxes simply vanish they're not paradoxes they're only paradoxical to the ego mind and they're made that way they're made to seem that way in order that we fall for the the trap the ego mind the ego mind creates the problem and then the ego mind offers us a solution like nihilism or like oh we're all gods already we're all divine already we're all one with god already so we're all divine already and you know that's like someone in this symphony orchestra saying they're beethoven well we're all playing his ninth symphony we're all playing his ninth symphony right we're all here playing his ninth symphony so we're all beethoven it's it's lunacy it's lunacy or the person who's who's right taking psychedelics saying oh that's that's all i need to do and i'm gonna i'm gonna become i'm you know i'm gonna i'm gonna sit i'm gonna sit with the archangels mikael and gabriel and anael and samael and i'm gonna sit with them and i'm going to uh i'm gonna hang out with them and i count myself their equal yeah and jesus too yeah throw jesus in there oh yeah i'm uh, yeah i hang out with you i hang out with master abramento in the absolute yeah 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 he who sacrificed himself who went through crucifixion who was the greatest master of masters on this planet oh yeah yeah i'm 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 good with i'm good with jesus i'm one with him yeah yeah i just smoked a bunch of mushrooms it's lunacy it's lunacy okay 
some questions then. A prayer recommendation to invite the self to take a more significant role in our mechanical vessel. You don't have to invite yourself to do that. Yourself is doing everything that they can. All you have to do is pay attention and allow them to do so. Um, but the Paternoster or the, the Our Father, the, the uh, 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 Hail Mary, Hail Mary full of grace. Um, we can recommend a book called the Gnostic Prayer Book, which has a bunch of different prayers um, for different for different uses, different applications. There are, for example, the prayers of protection to help protect you from egos. And then there's, of course, mantra. So Om Mani Padme Om is a mantra that you can practice over and over and over again, will assist in awakening the consciousness. Um, that's using the power of sound and prayer is in essence, the power of sound. Um, we're going to see if we can pull this up for you here. Mm. Okay, so this is a Gnostic prayer book, collected prayers, mantras, and meditations. Uh, it is it's not a uh, it's not a big book. It's not a thick book. I think it's like ten bucks, fourteen ninety five, something like that. Um, so that one we can recommend and but again you we put the link in the chat and we'll throw it up here for you as well um this notion that you have to pray to your innermost to get them more involved in your mechanical vessel, it's it doesn't exactly work that way. They're not going to take control of you without your awareness. What you need to do is awaken to the fact that you are them, that they are you. You have to follow your intuition, follow your gut feeling, and know what that is. Know that your intuition is your innermost being working through you. So for example, all these words that we're speaking to you, this is Atlas speaking to you. That whole chess analogy, try to understand that as we were putting together this PowerPoint, we did not know Meaning I, I did not know why 
I was putting those images into the PowerPoint. I, I, all I knew was, okay, this is the perspective of the Black Lodge. This is the perspective of the White Lodge. This is bullshit. The bullshit Dow perspective that can never happen. I was I was only given information is on a need to know basis. So when I was putting together the PowerPoint, these images were jumping off of off of Google image search. I said, okay, that one was that one, that one. But the connection between those images and the paradox of the self and how the sleeping person is actually the black pieces looking at, none of that was in my mind when I did when I prepared the PowerPoint. In other words, Atlas didn't reveal to me why he was choosing those images. These live streams are essentially a waking meditation, a waking download. I'm just allowing, I'm just acting on that which I'm being given by Atlas from within. So it's, it's a matter of observing and knowing yourself and allowing the unfoldment. of yourself, your true self. But in any case, this, this prayer book will help you, will help you. Dylan says, uh, no questions, found it interesting. Though you started with David and ended with a symphony when David's harp was tuned with the Pythagorean temperament, the cycles of the fourths and fifths. Sorry for my less egregious comments. We mentioned David, Michelangelo's David, and now you're referring to David's harp. Um, we're not uh, well-schooled in the Pythagorean school. So... You know, perhaps, Dylan, uh, you and I can have a conversation and perhaps you can join one of our live streams as a, as a, as a guest and you can, you can provide information to everyone about what you're talking here, about, uh, about what you're talking about. Because for the moment, at least, we don't... Um, at the moment, we don't see the relevance between what the topic that we were sharing and and um, and what you're mentioning here. But again, that's because we're not experts in the Pythagorean school. And like many, many other things, we're not experts in gematria. We're not ex experts in the tarot. We're not experts in 
the Hebrew alphabet. We're not experts. There are many, 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 many countless esoteric topics and areas of study that we are not expert in, that we don't know about, or at least that I am not given to know about and that I have not been told to become an expert in. Why? Well, without sounding too self-aggrandizing, we are here I'm here as a servant and a vessel for my innermost being. And together with Atlas, we are here as a servant and a messenger of the Logos. And yet, we are not experts in all of these so-called areas of esoteric study. How is that possible if all of that is extraneous and ultimately unnecessary to the path? We are not here. There, you, you, are, you, you can come on as a guest and teach other people about this, that information or people can go to glorian.org or literally hundreds of other websites and so many other resources and so many other masters and so many other teachers and messengers have written about and shared and studied and presented all that information more power to them we are here to give you the need to know information. The stuff that matters, where the rubber meets the road, the essentials, the practical, down to earth, real world elements of the path. And then you can, once you, once you, if you awake, awaken, meet your divine mother, meet your innermost being, start receiving from them in a way that you can have like waking meditations and you start developing that true faith of knowing yourself. Your innermost will tell you what's valuable to you and what isn't. And if he tells you to go and study Pythagorean schools and sacred geometry and all this stuff, then knock yourself out. But what we can tell you is that we have encountered countless people, countless who are experts in all matters of esotericism, but they're not awake. They don't know the name of their innermost. 
They can't speak. The words of their innermost. They can quote Manly P. Hall, Blavatsky, Steiner, uh, Gurdjieff, and they can they can fill books with their knowledge of everything from sacred geometry to gematria to astrology. You name it. You name it. They've literally spent a lifetime accumulating all of this esoteric knowledge. And we're here to tell you that they are nowhere ahead of any of you watching here tonight. That's why we, that's why we even came up with, we, we, we speak about that which we seek on the path, self-evident experiential knowledge, that which we seek. Self-evident experiential knowledge. That does not mean that which you read in a book. And that's why when we give our live streams or when we do our videos, we, we try to use visualizations and we always, always refer back to the analogous ultimate methodology. which is analogous, analogs, allegories, case studies, real world that, you, that in your imagination, when you see it, when you're presented with it, like seeing a chessboard from the surface of the board, from that perspective, and how that changes reality when you realize that all human beings who are asleep are playing chess from the side of the black pieces, but they don't know it. But they don't know it. They think they're playing white, but that's because of what we described. The Black Lodge, the white pieces are the enemy, are the prey. They are the prey, and we are the predators. Get what you want. Manifest what you desire, right? So we, this is what matters. This is where the rubber meets the road and the Black Lodge and White Lodge and how to develop and how to grow and, and how to awaken. And the work. And 
the lessons, the wisdom, the word of God, living, breathing, it's all around us. All the baffling that we need as we flow through life, the baffling that we need, that we may awaken and hear the innermost that light that's shining from the being here behind the mask behind the persona that light that's this light that is the light at the heart of every single one of these stars is that light that's the cosmic Christ. That's the logos. And that being behind the mask there is one individuated essence of the brotherhood of the star that we spoke of in our poem, Ratatoskar in the Seed. Because within us, that being sitting on that throne inside of us is just an essence, is just a seed. Because we talked earlier about the seed and the potential to become a tree. Well, every essence, every seed, it's not only a potential to become a tree, it has the potential to become a star. First a moon, then a planet. Then a sun. Oremus is the being at the heart of the super cluster of stars at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Levels and levels and levels and levels and levels and levels. Surely, surely, between now and then there will be more than ample opportunity and there will be a time and a place to become a master of Pythagorean theorem and Pythagorean mathematics and sacred geometry. Of course, there is a time and place for that. But if you ask us To become a master of all of that intellectually is putting the cart before the horse. Because unless you're a cosmo creator, or unless your being is here creating sacred architecture using sacred geometry, and you have a very specific task and a very specific practical application of that knowledge. But again, we've known too many esotericists who fall into the trap 
of accumulating esoteric knowledge intellectually. And we cannot count how many people have, have bragged about their esoteric library of all the books that they've read and all the esoteric books that they've accumulated and they take photos of them, they put them on their Facebook pages. I just picked up this book and I just picked up that book and I just picked up a... Have you ever, ever, ever seen or heard us brag about what we just read? Because it doesn't count for shit in the grand scheme of things. What you've read. It doesn't, doesn't matter that you've read the Bhagavad Gita or you haven't. Or that you've read the Pista Sophia or you haven't. Because we've met many people who have read the Pista Sophia... They completely misunderstand and misinterpret the whole goddamn thing. So what good does what good did it do them? What good does it do anybody to read anything with their ego mind? We we can go and watch Jordan Peterson, the poor fellow, give his lengthy lectures on the Bible and the Bible stories and fairy tales and the poor intellectual uh, uh, intellectual animal gets it completely wrong. Oh, sure. He can find value in it because, of course, these are archetypal stories. So he applies modern problems to ancient uh, scripture and he believes he's cracked the nut on the Bible. And see how practical it is? 5,000 years ago, they knew how to become successful in today's society. So, we're here, our work, again, we've mentioned many times as Ark Builder, two things go in the Ark. The best fruit, because from the best fruit comes the best seeds. From the best seeds, we plant the next humanity. And the second thing that goes in the ark is knowledge, gnosis, that, self-evident experiential knowledge, that which we seek. How many people throughout history have been seeking the ark of the covenant? Even Indiana Jones, right? Even Indiana Jones went looking for the Ark because it's what we seek. The self-evident experiential knowledge, da'at, gnosis, is what is in that Ark. And we've shown you that graphic of the Tree of Life. We have that meme that shows the lower triangle of the monad is, the, is, the, is Noah's Ark, the vessel, and the upper triangle of the tree of life, the world of Atsaluth, is the Arc de Triomphe, the Arc of Triumph. And it is the and it is these two triangles on the tree of life 
that create the Ark of the Covenant and Gnosis, Da'at, self-evident experiential knowledge is inside of that Ark. Everything else, everything else can wait. Everything else can come later. Right? If you can awaken and make it to Nirvana, even if you just make it to Nirvana, even if you choose the spiral path and don't take the direct path, that's fine. But just imagine if you can, if you awaken in the sixth dimension, you can spend an eternity in the Akashic records studying. Benjamin says that's why today's uh, society is very dangerous because ego dominates in all social media platforms and uh, Facebook tempts people to brag. Well, Facebook is an interesting platform. Um, we use it. We like to think in a positive way. Um, uh, we we don't we don't go on to Twitter. Twitter is an anathema to knowledge. Twitter is a reactionary. Twitter is a as a, a soundbite uh, platform. It's a it's a it's a place of reaction. It's not a place for reasonable conscious discourse. It really isn't. Uh, it's a place for egos to react to one another, and attack one another, and make themselves feel better, to validate themselves. Um, so that's that's Twitter and we don't we don't do we don't do that. But you're right. Facebook is Facebook is is it is what it is. Look, it is what it is. Straight path versus spiral path. What is considered the straight path? Hopefully, the one that we are on. Oh, we'll throw that up here. Um, perhaps we'll we'll dedicate a live stream to talking about this and the initiations in a little bit more detail, but. Basically, if you awaken, if you become enlightened or awaken, create the human soul, you become a Buddha and you can enter into nirvana. You can get off the wheel of samsara. You can get off that, that cycle and you can make it into nirvana. And from there, basically, you've earned your place in heaven. You're in the sixth dimension. You've earned your place in heaven and you're... You can be there from now on and you can come down occasionally when you feel like it you can reincarnate and come down and help humanity in some way work a little bit on yourself eliminate some ego and then return to nirvana that's called the spiral path and you can take countless lifetimes um, slowly 
spiraling up the mountain, right? Taking the long spiral path up the mountain of initiations. So eventually you will reach the top of the mountain and achieve mastery. Um, and then you'll have to face the second mountain. The direct path is when you awaken and you attain the level of nirvana, but you forsake it, you, you, you give it up. And you take, <coughs> you decide that you're going to go straight to the top of the mountain, not around the mountain, but straight to the top of the mountain of initiation and achieve mastery in one lifetime. What's more, if you are on the path of the Bodhisattva, you are going to complete the path of all three mountains in one lifetime. The path of the Bodhisattva is the most difficult path there is. And neither the straight path nor the path of the Bodhisattva is possible if you are a fornicator. You cannot, you cannot attain, you cannot do that path. You can only accomplish that path with sexual alchemy, with uh, white tantra. And by living a life of suffering and sacrifice for humanity. There is no other way to do the path of the Bodhisattva. Can you become a master doing the straight path? In other words, can you just do the first mountain without doing the mountain of resurrection? We, we cannot deny... Uh, it's... It, it really it really is it's not a it's not an it's not a quick and easy answer it was a difficult question it was a good question but not it's one that deserves a live stream and we're at three and a half hours so already so it's perhaps perhaps we've given you a kind of a short condensed version but to do a program on the different paths um, there's an entire course on Glorian called the path of the bodhisattva and it's something like what eight 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 lectures and they're each one is two two and a half hours long so um yeah so this is not this is not again it's not soundbite material um and you know in some ways we're not uh completely at ease speaking about it because we're still on the path of the bodhisattva we haven't completed it yet so in terms of all the initiations and everything else we don't i don't have any knowledge of that that's all 
right? Again, because none of that, that's not need to know information for us at our level, right? What's important to us is that we awaken and, and connect with our innermost and be able to follow the will of our innermost being. And then he will make those decisions for us, right? Because we're just a vessel. We're just a, we're, right? We're a persona. We're a vessel. We're the Iron Man suit. Okay, well, everyone, thank you so much for uh, for coming out and for being with us this evening, as always. And we hope to see you again soon on uh, Friday. As always, we say inverential peace. And uh, <clears throat> God bless you all. And have a good night. Good night.